Good morning again. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Our sermon text this morning is Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. Before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you again for your gospel and your grace and your love that casts out all fear. We pray that we would think about that now this morning as we read your word and as we meditate on it. We pray that we would think about it and that we would be uh, encouraged and strengthened and emboldened to go and show and tell that love to those around us in a way that brings glory and honor to our Savior Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 17, beginning with verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him. And find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. 
I want to ask up front and, and get out of the way a question which often um, I think about when we talk about evangelism, which is that why is it that discussions of evangelism always seem so guilt-inducing? Uh, and maybe, maybe that's not true for you. Maybe it's just me who feels guilty. But I, I think that when we talk about evangelism, we tend to think we're not doing enough. Whatever it is that we're doing, it's not enough. Or we think other people think we're not doing enough. Or we think that we're not properly gifted. I mean, we're, we're not the Apostle Paul. Uh, we're not George Whitfield. We're not uh, Billy Graham. And so we're doomed to failure from the start, which really brings us back to point one, right? We're not doing enough because we're not gifted to do what needs to be done. And the whole thing feels kind of hopeless. Well, I hope our discussion this morning won't feel hopeless to you. Uh, I, I want to I talk about sort of a five-part approach. I don't really like calling it that, but sort of five different aspects of sharing the gospel or five different aspects of our witness to Christ, which follows Paul's approach here in Acts chapter 17. Uh, five key aspects of communicating Jesus. Uh, but I want to say two things before I jump into that. And the first is that these five, they don't, they don't have to be done all at once, right? This is not a five-step program. Uh, we, we have this view of evangelism that says, uh, I've got to get from hello to amen in one conversation, right? That's real evangelism. It's kind of a salesman view of evangelism, that I've got to work through these five steps in one sitting and close the deal, so to speak. Now, these five things that we'll talk about, they do all need to be done at some point, more or less, but they don't all need to be done at once, necessarily. The second thing to say is not only do these five not have to be done all at once, uh, they don't all have to be done by you. Right? Not, not only do we have a salesman view of evangelism, we tend to have, maybe as a consequence, a very individualistic view of evangelism. Our view of evangelism is of the lonely individual or maybe a pair of individuals going door-to-door -door like, well, a door-to-door -door salesman, right, looking for sales. Now, I'm not against door-to-door -door evangelism, uh, but I don't think that's the only way it needs to be done. And I'm not against individual evangelism, right? I, I hope that you, uh, as you have opportunities, you share the gospel with people around you. Uh, we've seen Philip in Acts preach the gospel in Samaria and to the Ethiopian eunuch by himself. We're going to look at Paul preaching this morning the gospel as an individual in Athens. But I don't think that's the only way it's done in Scripture, and we're not Paul, after all. And so I, I want to ask a question, really. What would it look like uh, for us to have a church-centered understanding of evangelism, a, a corporate understanding of sharing the gospel, uh, where we're all involved and all engaged and all performing different roles, but to a common end? We could think of ourselves as individuals moving people along one step further, planting seeds, as we often put it, right? And we, we put it like that because that's the language Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And uh, you'll notice there, each individual is doing something different. Paul's planting, Apollos is watering, but of course it's God that produces uh, the end result. Now that won't just happen, right? It's sort of a corporate understanding of bearing the gospel, bearing witness to the gospel won't just happen any more than an individual 
uh, understanding, right? We, we have to be no less intentional about working together to share Jesus. Uh, we need to work together, right, to communicate Christ to the people around us. But within that, there are five, five things I want to talk about, five parts, five key aspects of that work, um, whatever you want to call it. What, is, what does gospel witness look like? What must be done? These five things, and they're in your bulletin uh, on the back uh, as an outline. Care, connect, confront, complete, and call. And uh, at least part of this outline, I, I uh, well, I think it came from a talk I heard on persuasion about five, six years ago, but I think part of it came from there, but I'm not really sure. Uh, but care, connect, confront, complete, and call. Uh, first, care. And it's actually not what you think. What moves you? What, what really moves you, right? What, uh, what makes you angry? What makes you cry? What breaks you? What do you really care about? Now, I know we're, we're at a point in American history, right, where tensions run high, at least in, in the political sphere, right, where people are taking sides. The word polarization comes up a lot. Uh, but I think, and, and again, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm just reflecting my own heart here, but I think our problem is not actually that emotions run too high. I think our real problem is apathy. Most of the time, I don't care what's going on outside my door. I've experienced enough trouble in life, my heart has become hard enough and calloused enough. Uh, I've been hurt enough in life that, that I've learned not to love, I've learned not to open up my heart too much. That was actually not the case with Paul. In Acts 17, Paul is continuing his second missionary journey. He's been back through Galatia and into Macedonia. He's been to Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And now he's at the city of Athens. And Paul is there actually just waiting, verse 16 tells us. Uh, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him. Uh, I, I think already there's, there's an interesting point there uh, about our use of time, right? Paul's waiting. Uh, but he sees an opportunity to share the gospel, and he takes it. Now, we hate waiting. I hate waiting, anyway. And, um, you know, but how often do we find ourselves waiting for something? Waiting for the bus, or waiting for class to start, or waiting for your meeting to start, or waiting to pick up your kids from soccer, or basketball, or taekwondo. Uh, now, okay, nowadays, of course, though, we, we don't just wait. Uh, we don't just wait because we have our phones with us. Right? And so we surf the web, and we respond to emails, and we play the newest Temple Run knockoff. Right? We have so filled our lives uh, that there's actually no downtime. There's no waiting. And when there's no downtime, there's no opportunities. Uh, maybe our filling every moment's not actually a good thing. Uh, maybe we need to spend more time waiting and see what happens. Paul was waiting. And because his head was not in his phone or in a game or in a book, uh, he saw what was around him. Verse 16 says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now that word provoked means Paul got angry. Uh, the same word is in 1 Corinthians 13, you know that great love chapter where it says that love is not irritable. That's the word that is used here. Paul is irritated. He's angry at the idols that he sees around him. 
Why did Paul get angry? You know, uh, all anger actually comes from love. All anger comes from love. Uh, you, you would never get angry if you didn't love something. And uh, we get angry when what we love is threatened. Why did Paul get angry? What did he love so much that it was worth getting angry about? Paul got angry when he saw that the city was full of idols. Okay, well, what was he loving? What did Paul love? Paul loves God. Uh, Paul was a, a, a good Jewish boy. He, he would have known the Ten Commandments by heart. He knew that the first two commandments are, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any graven images to bow down and to worship. And when Jesus summarizes and interprets the Ten Commandments, right, he, he says what? Well, these first two, in fact, the first four can be summed up in the commandment, you shall love the Lord your God. Paul loves God. He loves God so much that idols make him angry. God alone deserves our worship. God alone deserves our praise. He alone is king of heaven and earth. God alone is God. But we, we give our worship to idols, to empty images. We give our lives, our trust, our fear, our awe to created things rather than to the creator. Now, now today, of course, those idols are not typically images made of wood and stone. But we idolize our individualism or our autonomy. We idolize America or the free market or money or ourselves or our family or health food or health care or movie stars or rock stars. We give our lives to games and exercise and work and politics, right? We, we live for our image, our reputation. Does it anger you when you see these things happening? When you see people living for created things, whatever it might be, good thing, bad thing, rather than for the glory of God. I don't mean do you get angry at that person and start yelling at them. That's not what I mean. Right? But does it move you inside? And do you think, I hate the fact that God is not glorified. I hate the fact that he is not worshiped and praised. What does make you angry? Right? What, what makes you angry reveals what you love. What, what moves you? You know, I, if I can be honest, I think we're, we're probably not angry enough. Right? We're probably not moved enough. I think we don't, we don't care enough about the glory of God. And because we don't care about the glory of God, we actually don't care about the plight of the lost. You know, you know, John Piper uh, famously said, missions exists because worship does not, right? Missions exists because worship does not. You know, if we love God and we love his glory and we want to see him worshiped, we will, we will move out to share the gospel with the lost because we want them to know God as well. We want them to worship him. And I think we probably don't care as much as we think we do even about God's glory or about the plight of the lost. Uh, we don't care because we're not, we're not gripped with the glory of God, with his purposes for us and for the world. I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I don't pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers for his harvest. We, we love forgiveness and we celebrate God's grace but we're not moved by the call of God to bring that to others. 
I know that sounds harsh, but, but more often than not, it's, it's true in my own life. Of course, my job is to share the gospel with people, right? My, gob is to, my job is to proclaim uh, the gospel as found in the scriptures. And I can go through that, those motions without actually being moved by the glory of God to do it. Do I care? Right? Do I care? I ask myself again and again, do I care about the glory of God enough to care about my neighbor? And I'm not, I'm not asking, right, do you, can you work up emotions for starving children in Africa that you've never seen, never interacted with? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying do you care about those who are under oppressive dictatorships in various parts of the world. Those may be good questions. That's not what we're talking about, though. I'm saying do, are we moved by the glory of God enough to love our neighbor who we see? Right? That's a lot harder to interact with the people right around us. Do I care about God and his glory enough to care about the people I bump into every day? And of course, caring about the glory of God does lead to caring about people. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 begins with the word so, right? So verse 16 says, Paul gets angry. So, verse 17, his zeal for the glory of God moves him to love the people around him. Uh, now, you know, when I first was thinking about this outline and thinking about this sermon, I, I didn't think that this is where this point was going to go. Uh, I thought I was going to talk about our care for the lost, right? We, we love people. We love the lost. Care for them. That's kind of the first step, right? But as I kept reading Acts 17, I kept thinking, well, Paul's care, his zeal, his love is for the glory of God. It's that that moves him to care for the lost, and I think if we as a church, if we're going to make an impact for God in, in this place, at this time, whether individually or corporately, we must love God. We must love him enough to, to be moved, to get angry, to be uh, uh, irritated by the sin around us. You know, I, I'm really good at getting irritated when someone gets my overpriced drink wrong at Starbucks, but I don't get angry or I'm not moved when God is not glorified. That shows my values. That shows what I think is really important. Uh, now, we heard earlier in our assurance of grace, right, how we come to love God that much. We love because he first loved us, right? Our love is a reflex. Our love is responsive. If we want to love God more, we don't reach down into the recesses of our heart and try to squeeze blood out of a stone. If we want to love God more, we gaze upon the cross because it's there that we see the love of God supremely displayed, right? That, that is what will move us to love him and love our neighbor. And so if you find that your heart is loveless this morning, if you find that your zeal is cool and not hot, pray and look. Ask God to warm your heart by the burning bonfire of his love in the cross. And then gaze upon Jesus, meditate on him, meditate on his love for you until it warms you. And so if we want to reach the lost, the first thing we need to do actually is love God. We must care about his glory and praise. To connect. 
Uh, it, it's not news, right, to say that we live in, in a kind of disconnected culture. We can walk by people every day and never see them. We're all in our own little worlds, uh, listening to our headphones or talking on our cell phones or playing on our smartphones. Uh, we've forgotten how to talk to people, how to engage. I'm so often wrapped up in myself or my plans or my family or my work that I'm, I'm just not paying attention to people around me. I've got things to do and places to be and I'm not paying attention, much less engaging with them. But notice Paul, right? Paul engages. He sees the idols in verse 16, and so in verse 17, uh, he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. You could probably talk for a long time just about that verse and all of the different aspects of Paul's ministry there, but what we see is Paul seeks to engage anybody, anywhere, anytime. <laughs> And the philosophers clearly look down on him. Uh, he's not a professional after all in their eyes. He's just a babbler, street preacher, an armchair philosopher. And yet they nevertheless, they, they want to hear what he has to say. Uh, there, there might have been a, a little hint of kind of putting Paul on philosophical trial here. Like, yeah, let, let's see if you really have what it takes. Um, questioning whether Paul is doing something illegal if, even uh, trying to teach some uh, secret, uh, trying to start a new secret cult. Which, of course, goes to show that Christianity is misunderstood from the beginning. Paul wasn't trying to keep what he said secret. He was trying to proclaim it to everyone who would hear. Uh, whatever the case, Paul opens himself up to these people. He engages, and they bite. And they, they bring him to the Areopagus, which is kind of the philosophy court of the day. Paul stands up in the midst, and he begins to talk. And he begins to connect, in a way, his own way, in verses 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, we need to realize, right, Paul is not commending their religion, <laughs> Uh, they, they, they worship many false gods. He's not saying, I saw all these altars. Good job. Uh, but he is commending them in a way. He's saying, you, you, you have a hint of the truth here. Uh, there is this altar to an unknown God. Paul says elsewhere that all people know God, but they suppress that knowledge because God's not convenient. But there are all these places where that knowledge pokes through, right? where, where it comes to the surface, where the knowledge of God comes out or the image of God in us comes through, and we meet people in those places. Again, Paul's not saying you, you have this all right, but, but he's saying there's a hint, there's a clue here in the way that you live. And oftentimes these hints or these, these clues are those points where people recognize the mystery. There's points where people realize they don't get it. Uh, notice the acknowledgement of verse 23. There's an altar to the unknown God. Right? The, the truth is that there is a God that they don't know. And Paul meets them right there. Now, stepping back from this for a minute, let me ask, right, when, as you engage with non-Christians, are you able to see those places where they get it? Right? Those places where... Where, where the knowledge of God is kind of coming through? Are you able to recognize where, where that knowledge, where that image of him pokes through? 
Can you see the image of God in them? Maybe even celebrate that image in them. That's more than what Paul is doing here. He's not celebrating the altar to the unknown God. But right, if we see the image of God in someone, that truly can be celebrated. It's his image, after all. And it's really important to start there with people. We can't stop there. But it sure helps to start there. So how can we connect with the people around us? How can, how can we pay attention to them and engage them? How can we connect over, or over what we have in common? That is, where is the truth of God and the goodness of God and the image of God breaking through in their lives, breaking through in their thoughts and in their passions? How can we connect and even celebrate that and say, yeah, you, there's something here. There's something that you're seeing. And so we care, we connect, and we confront. Paul confronts the, the paganism of his day in verses 24 to 29. He says in verse 24 that the true God made the world and everything in it, and therefore he's the Lord of heaven and earth. Since he's the Lord of heaven and earth, we don't, we don't think of him as needing anything. Right? He doesn't need a temple, verse 24. In fact, he determines our dwelling places, verse 26. He doesn't need to be served by us, verse 25. He doesn't need to be fed by our sacrifices. How silly would that be? He's the God who made us and who made all things. Rather, he gives us breath and everything. That's a pretty comprehensive phrase. He gives us breath and everything. And Paul goes on to quote two pagan poets in verse 28. He says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Again, Paul is recognizing there's, there's truth poking through here. Now, what's interesting is those poets are possibly talking about Zeus. They're definitely not talking about Yahweh. <laughs> but again, the, the truth pokes through even in their ignorance. Right? Paul's point is, look, you, you've got this little glimmer of the truth. We are his offspring. Right? There is some, we are made in the image of God. But if that is true, how can you think that God is like a block of marble. It doesn't make any sense. So he takes the glimmer of truth that they get. Right? You see this thing. You see this truth about God, about who he is. And then he shows how they aren't even living consistently with that glimmer. And, and as much as could be said about these verses, and uh, people have gone very deep into the way Paul argues here, and uh, if we had, you know, an extra hour or two, that would be fun. Uh, but I think the most basic point, the most basic thing to, to walk away with is this, that Paul both connects and confronts. Uh, Paul both recognizes where the truth, the goodness, and the image of God is poking through. Hey, you get this. He's not saying you get it all right. He's not saying you understand it perfectly, but you get, you get it. You, you have this glimmer. And he confronts them with the way that they have distorted those very things. You know, our temptation is to do one or the other. Uh, some people are tempted just to connect, right? These are the people who go so far as to say, we all really believe the same thing, right? I mean, they worship a God, we worship a God. It's all the same, right? Why be so picky about the particulars, right? Just celebrate the similarities. But, you know, there are other people who are tempted just to confront, 
uh, th this is more our temptation maybe as, as more theologically conservative Christians, right? We know we've got the truth. Uh, we clearly see how others have got it wrong. And so we go in guns blazing, telling everybody how wrong they are. But Paul does both, right? I mean, he, he connects with the knowledge of God breaking through in their life. You, you have this altar to the unknown God. There's something you get that you don't get. Uh, your, your prophets have, or your poets have said true things. They don't understand them, but they've said something true there. He connects with the knowledge of God breaking through in their life. And, the, and this may be, right, some truth about God or some truth about his goodness or beauty or some truth about truth itself that somebody gets. And you can grab hold of that and say, okay, I see you get this. Then, therefore, and you walk it out. This may be some aspect of God's image shining forth in this person. However marred or broken we are as sinful people, the image of God in us is not eliminated. It's disfigured, but it's not eliminated. And as that image pokes through, we, we bear witness in our own selves about who our God is. And so in an act of kindness or creativity, an act of justice or goodness or wisdom or grace, an act of love for one's children or faithfulness to one's spouse, an act of mourning over trouble and pain, an act of anger at injustice or oppression, right? All of these bear witness to the truth of God. And if you can see these in others, you can celebrate them, you can then connect, and you can engage with them at that point. But of course, it's not as if, we can't stop there, it's not as if we really believe the same thing, therefore, and they get it, and they have it all right, we serve the same God, and we can let it go. No, people deny the true God, right? They deny him in their words and in their actions. They distort the knowledge of God and treat God as a created thing to be used for their own ends rather than the creator whose, whose help and mercy we need. And so we not only celebrate and connect, but we must confront sin and rebellion and the distortions of who God is and what he does. And so here's the, the question, maybe the, the simple way of putting it, right? When you relate to people, how can we both, when we relate to people, how can we both celebrate and confront? Do you tend to land on one or the other, right? Does fear or, or pride cause you to want to pick sides and go to some extreme? Neither extreme will ultimately do justice to the gospel. So how can we care deeply about the glory of God, connect with people where that glory pokes through in their lives, and confront them where it has been distorted. Don't say we have to do all of that at once, but both are necessary to our witness to the gospel. Both are necessary, but even together, actually, they're not sufficient. Paul doesn't end there, right? So care, connect, confront, and for complete. Uh, verses 30 to 31 say this. The times of ignorance, Paul says... God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, now Paul essentially says this, right? He says, you've got these bits and pieces of truth poking through. Uh, you know there's a God that you don't know. You know that we are his offspring, but for some reason you're trying to end your story in temples and idols and pagan sacrifices, you're treating God as if he were a needy, helpless, lifeless block of wood. That doesn't make sense. That's not the real end of the story. The real end of the story is in Jesus. God is going to judge the world. He has appointed Jesus to do just that. 
And when God raised Jesus, it was because God had, had judged him and found him righteous. And the resurrection is, is the reward for Jesus' righteousness. The resurrection of Jesus is therefore evidence that God will judge all people. He judged Jesus and found him righteous. And he will judge all people and either reward or punish as their deeds deserve. And of course, as we've seen earlier in the book of Acts, the resurrection is the, the fulfillment of God's promises to David. So it also shows, right, that God has raised up Jesus as the son of David, as the Messiah, as the, the king of heaven and earth. And so Jesus' resurrection not only shows that judgment is real and is coming, it also shows who the judge will be. Jesus the king, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the son of David. And so Paul is really preaching in Athens the same thing that he always preaches, Jesus as the resurrected king. And here's why this is so important as we think about evangelism, because hearing that the knowledge of God or the goodness of God or the image of God is somehow poking through in our lives, even celebrating those places where goodness and truth and beauty still thrive, that won't save you from the coming judgment. And hearing about your sin and your brokenness and the ways that you've distorted the goodness and the truth and the beauty of life, that won't save you from the coming judgment either. Right? Neither, neither God's goodness in creation nor the knowledge of our distortion of that goodness, those things don't save. So what saves? Well, earlier in Acts, uh, concerning the name of Jesus, Peter said, Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or more recently in Acts, Paul said in Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. See, the knowledge of God and creation does not save. The knowledge of our sin does not save. Freedom from impending judgment comes when we believe in the Lord Jesus. And so we must show people that the true ending of their story is found in Jesus. Any true hopes, dreams, any true knowledge, any true joy finds its climax in Jesus, in the cross and the resurrection and the new creation. And of course, to show that, to be able to show that with people, we need to know Jesus. We need to not only meditate on the gospel, we also need to walk with Jesus, right? We need to not only know his story, but know him and walk with him so that we might make him known to the people around us. So there's care and connect and confront and complete like pointing people to the real end of the story in Jesus, and five, call. Uh, Luke tells us in verse 21, backing up a little bit, he says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And, and what that means is, back in verse 20, when they say, We wish to know what these things mean, it's not that they're interested in conversion. Right? They're not saying, Paul... Let, let us know what, what, what you're teaching so that we can convert to Christianity. They don't want Paul to challenge them. They just like hearing new things. They're like news junkies, right? They're, they're always listening, never doing, always talking, never acting. They just want their ears titillated with some new teaching. What's going on? Tell us this new thing. We want to hear it. And lots of people are like this with religion, right? Lots of Christians are like this with religion. They love to get together and have a good argument. Right? We love to discuss the truth, 
We have no intention to believe it. We love to to talk about God, but we have no interest in giving our lives to him. We love to debate ethics, but we have no desire for a transformed life. And often as, as people telling others about Jesus, we're okay with that. We're just happy to have the conversation. And we're very non-confrontational, right? We, we never get to the point where we say, you know, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. We're slow to say there are, there are two roads here. A, a wide one that leads to destruction and a narrow one that leads to life. Get on the right road. This is a matter of life and death. It's not a matter of idle curiosity. But of course, Jesus was quick to put that uh, decision before people. He's the one who said that bit about the two roads. He called people to repentance. He sent the apostles to call even more people to repentance, and now he sends us. Now, I don't know how this leaves you as you think about these things. I hope it will lead in us as a church to conversation about how we can reach our neighbors together and action to that end, not just conversation. If you're wondering whether this approach to evangelism, right, fits with the gospel itself, uh, consider Jesus again, right? Jesus loved his father and he loved us. He was not apathetic, but impassioned. And as a result, he came into the world. He connected with us. He got in our skin. He touched the lepers. He talked with the adulteress. He affirmed the, the prostitutes. He ate with gluttons and drank with drunks. He received sinners. That's why I got in so much trouble. But he also confronted. He said to people, go and sin no more. He confronted people with their hardness of heart. He confronted people with their pride and self-righteousness and religiosity. And then he went to the cross and he bore sin. He rose from the dead, bringing to climax the story of history in his resurrection. That's where the end of the story, the final judgment, broke into the present. When Jesus was judged in the cross for our sin and rose from the dead because of his righteousness. And now Jesus calls all men everywhere to repent. And so let's let's go as as a community and consider how we can bear witness to this Jesus. As a community, together, each doing our part, whatever that might look like. Let's go impassioned for the glory of God to connect with the lost, to confront them in their sin, to to show the true end of the story is found in Jesus and to call all people to put their trust in him, that Jesus would be made known and God would be glorified. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us, that we would be impassioned for your glory that we would be zealous that your name would be made known, that we would be moved for you and for your honor and for your name, that Jesus would be exalted, that you, our Father, would be made known, that your glory would, as the prophets tell us, will one day be true, that your glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Let that be near and dear to our hearts and move us to live for you in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.